You're listening to Cancer Covered. The more a specific topic creates interest, concern, or consternation in the public mind, the more myths and misunderstandings there will be about it. It's natural. We try to think of explanations for why a particular thing is happening, we exchange our ideas with others, and sometimes our ideas stick, whether they're accurate or not. Sometimes the inaccurate ones are the stickiest, especially when the idea offers what looks like a simple explanation to a complex problem or provides reassurance about a scary subject like cancer. But myths about cancer can be a problem. Not only can they add anxiety and confusion to an already confusing situation, they can divert energy, time, and resources from taking useful action, or sometimes even lead people to take actions that are harmful. Today, we'll discuss a few of the common myths about cancer, speculate about where some of them came from, and try to clear up some of the misunderstanding. You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology, where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. Every oncologist spends a lot of their time, probably hours a week, debunking myths about cancer. Where did it come from? Will it get better if I do this? What's making it worse? The only people who spend more energy grappling with cancer myths and cancer doctors are cancer patients, and it's a difficult pitfall to avoid. I sat down with Dr. Edgar Bedeen, a medical oncologist and hematologist, to discuss some of the common myths he comes across on a day-to-day basis. Edgar, do you feel like myth-busting today? We'll try. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of them out there about all kinds of things, political and social and uh, but right. a lot of a lot of myths out there about cancer too, right? How often do you run into those in day to day practice? It's common. It's common because once you you have a new diagnosis, you start questioning why did I do something wrong? Can I do something different to change that uh, reality? And the internet is full of information. In the past, it used to be the information coming from your doctor. So your information now uh, can come from multiple sources. And many of those sources, they're not valid. They're not peer reviewed. Um, We as doctors follow what's uh, evidence-based uh, or if not evidence-based, the closest possible to evidence-based. So it has to be something that was observed, studied, tried. There's a lot of myth out there, and some of them have something to it, but it has to be put in the right context just to understand it's not the only piece. I think a lot of myths probably come from people trying to explain things they don't fully understand. Like one of the myths that I hear from time to time, not as much anymore, but there's this idea that if you have an early stage cancer and if you're taken to the operating room and if someone opens you up and then the air touches the cancer, that it just explodes like wildfire and then it, it can't be controlled. Have you ever heard someone yes. say that? I yes. have too. Yes. You have the, any idea where that may have come from? I, I would say in the old days, we didn't have scans, as we were saying. 
if we don't have scans, we don't know the extent of disease. All right. we know is one tip of the iceberg. Somebody comes in with a little lump that's on the right. outer surface of their abdomen and they go in for exploratory right. surgery. So they operate on those patients. They remove it. The cancer probably had already spread. It's just we didn't know about it. Or someone goes to sleep with what they think is early stage cancer because there's no CTs. We open them up, right. find out, surprise, there was a lot more in there. Exactly. They go to sleep thinking they have early stage cancer. They wake up being told they have advanced stage cancer. And I think any reasonable person would ask themselves, well, what changed between the time I was wheeled into that operating room and the time that I got out of it? Right. Exactly. It's almost like a, a, a folklore. Yes. And that had changed because we know more. And I don't hear it much anymore. We don't hear it as much as before. Probably depending on the generation of the patient exactly. and the culture. Mm -hmm. Because there are some some ethnicities, some cultures that have more of those myths. And maybe uh, depending on the educating people and how much they, they were educated and informed. Um, there has been in the past, and it's still a question that comes up, like, I have that cancer in multiple places of my body. Why don't we go after it? Even now, like, we know it's spread, and we know the scan shows multiple areas. But the question comes up, I don't know how much it comes up with you, but it, it came up multiple times. Why don't we remove what's in the liver and the lung? and Just remove all the bits we can see. Remove all the bits we can see. And the answer is obviously when the cancer is out of boundaries already, removing uh, those sites does not fix the problem. You can't eradicate it because there's seeds yeah. and roots of it left. It's already that out. You can't. Yeah. I tell people it's a lot like trying to hand weed a garden that's already overgrown. I mean, you're never, first of all, you're never going to get on top of it. And second of all, you can pull up all the weeds you see, but in a week, all those seeds that you can't see are back. We know because it got from A to Z that there's traces of it every right. step along the way. And there is some mechanism to that also, that the primary cancer eventually has some inhibitory effect on the metastasis. Not enough effect to stop, mm. but sometimes when removing cancer, when it's spread, it could make things worse. But that doesn't mean if you remove a cancer that's early or sometimes limited spread. We have now studies showing those limited spread because time told you or showed us that it didn't show up in other places. So those are the occasional cases where you still remove cancer even if it had spread but has to be really selective cases where we know that there was no other sites. Right. So that question comes up, for instance, when you have those limited spread disease, meaning limited, let's say, colon with one spot in the liver. And we've done our treatment and time kind of proved to us that there was no other sites. So those are the occasional cases where we can remove both sites and time will tell us what happens. But in those settings, people could live longer than what's usually for that stage. Early stage is a different story. Early stage, you want to remove it, really. That's your chance to remove it before it gets out of boundaries. And depending on 
how much it did to its environment, it tells you maybe some cells escaped and this is where you might do some chemotherapy. But removing cancer, the old myth of surgery is a no for cancer. We know better now. That's not not the the case. It's not the total solution, especially once it's spread beyond certain parents most of the time. Right. Here's one that I hear said very offhandedly a lot, often by the children of a a cancer patient that's in, and people will say, well, isn't it true that everyone has cancer in them all of the time anyway? Like, I've got cancer in me, you've got cancer in you, but we control it, right? So our cells multiply constantly. We are, as a human being, we have checkpoints. So there could be some abnormal cells, but our checkpoints take care of it. We still don't understand why some people, those checkpoints don't work. Why the cell manages to skirt past those checkpoints To bypass. And that gives us, actually, now we have medications for that. But to say we have cancer cells, not really all the time. We have abnormal cells, probably. They're just in a phase of being cleared. So probably we all have our cells multiply all the time. But when they escape that checkpoint and something goes wrong with our cells should die, we have a mechanism that cells will age and die. If they don't, now they're staying there. They're not functional. They start collecting. That's the mechanism of cancer. That's what the... A mutated cell that doesn't get past the checkpoint or evolve to be able to evade the checkpoint by definition is not cancer because it can't grow and spread and divide. Right. That's one of those statements that I hear that that's actually I still classify it as a myth, but it's very, I'd say, accurate adjacent. It's in the ballpark of accurate. And, you know, it's one of those slight distortions based on a slightly inaccurate reading of how complex this biology is. And I probably make similar inaccurate statements when I'm talking about my tax forms because it is, it's incredibly complex. But the way I explain back when I hear it is this is it's more accurate to say that everyone has a potential for cancer in them, but not everybody has cancer. It's, it's a big difference between having the potential for cancer, which just never winds up going anywhere, or gets cleared, and then actually having a cancer that graduates. And That's a fair statement. So here's a very popular one that I hear. Changing your body's pH can cure cancer. That's another one of those myths that I would call accurate adjacent. It's right in the ballpark of true. What do you think? So there's something that patients also need to know that can explain why some drugs work when we do the testing lab, but when we put it in the body of a human, it doesn't work. Kind of same principle. If you put a cell in an alkaline medium, it might kill it. When you do it in the human body, the human body is not just a medium, not just a container. It has many more complex pathways. And the problem with cancer, it can mimic those pathways. So it can create, it can learn from your normal cells and can that's why we start with treatment that works at the beginning, but it stops working. Create resistance, create mutations. So like the the sugar, this is only one piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. It's not the whole piece. And 
creating a severely alkaline blood has its problems too. It's actually not survivable for a human being to have a pH much outside of the range of 7.1 to 7.4. It will affect functions. You'd above much above 7.4, 7.5, you know, into the really alkaline range, you start to have seizures. You get much right. below right. seven, then you start to have cardiac arrhythmias, your kidneys start to shut down. And you get acidotic, it completely changes the metabolism of all your cells and you get very, very ill. It's one of the ways that people who have sepsis and severe infections die. Right, right. I mean, what that goes back to how much information on the internet there is. And we've seen a lot of patients who try to do all these kind of supplements and mm. have alkalines and lived healthy and still cancer developed because it's more complex than just one pathway. If we knew it's just one pathway, probably we would have eradicated cancer completely. If we know sugar is our main enemy, we would have eradicated cancer if that's the only problem. So there, as you said, it's kind of adjacent to the truth, adjacent mm -hmm. to the truth, because technically, yes, when you create an alkaline environment that's extreme, it could kill cancer cells, but it could kill your cells too. Every other cell along with so it. So every other cell. It's so, actually not very easy to change the pH of your body. I think there's this idea that if I drink, say, alkaline water or lemon juice or something to that effect, that I can actually drive my pH down. You actually can't. Uh, it's, it's extremely difficult to do because your body's so tightly regulated. Your kidneys are the acid-based buffer system. It's, it's, it's almost impossible. It's well established and widely understood that a diet excessively high in sugar carries significant health risks, including cancer. This leads to the popular idea that sugar acts like a kind of cancer accelerant. And then when cancer patients eat sugar, their tumors must grow. But the truth is more complex, as Edgar explained. You touched on one of the big ones. One of the ones that I hear really frequently, I'd say, in probably every third new patient that I meet is, isn't it true that sugar feeds cancer? Do you hear that one very often? I do. I do. There is definitely out there some papers and data about higher risk of cancer in people with diabetes, in people metabolic syndrome, metabolic syndrome meaning constellation of overweight, blood pressure, diabetes. So there is some truth to it in the meaning of, again, at the mechanism of it's a cell that could multiply more if it has cancer, but that cell has to exist first. And again, if your checkpoint is not working, that cell now exists. Whether the sugar is there or no, the cell, if it bypassed your system, it will probably grow different so, speeds at different pace. I think it's an easy conclusion for an intelligent person to make. We know, and it, you, as you said, it's absolutely clearly established that diabetics and people who are obese have a higher risk of cancer than the average population. We also have these PET scans that make tumors, mm -hmm. malignant tumors, light up. And we know that the thing that's lighting it up is their uptake of sugar. Voila, there you have it. Cancer thrives on sugar because people who have a lot of sugar in their bloodstream get cancer at a high rate. PET scan, 
homes right in. Yeah, the two complexities that aren't, once you get below the surface of that, we're not yet sure what it is about being diabetic or obese that causes the increased risk of cancer. It's certainly possible sugar has a role to play, but a couple of leading theories, and there's some evidence about it, is that it may have to do with the other hormonal things, things like IGH and you know, insulin-like growth factor. And it's actually driving and inflammation, which we right. know um, is true. And anybody who has an infl- you know, elevated uh, inflammatory state, people who live with autoimmune diseases, people who live with Crohn's disease, much higher risk of cancer than than other people who do not that that seems to be more compelling cause i think the other understandable misconception that results from it as well let's just deprive the cancer Mm -hmm. cells of sugar and they'll wither and die first that's actually really hard to do you know you can stop eating sugar but your body will convert other compounds to release glucose And that's the counterpart of it. You have patients who are very healthy, non-diabetic, and yet they have no medical history. They have ideal body weight, and they develop cancer. So that tells you that's not the whole story. story. There is more to it. There's also no evidence that cancer cells can't thrive on the other non-sugar alternative fuel that our bodies can produce ketone bodies like most other mammalian cells can you know you if it is possible to put yourself into a ketotic state uh there's diets you know that, that do that for people who you know want to lose lose weight uh, i know there's there's been some interest looking at it and, and you know is, does that inhibit the cancer and probably more studies needed on it but most you know, like any other mammalian cell, or it appears like any other mammalian cell, they can use ketone bodies as fuel just as easily as they can use glucose as fuel. And there's at present no evidence to suggest that that they mind one way or the other. And one important message to, to be clear that it's not in any way to say, you know, you can eat all the sugar you want. and No. Because diabetes has, or high sugar diet has many more problems than cancer. Uh, That leads to heart disease, vascular problems, amputations, strokes. There's numerous. So the answer when patients bring that up is eat healthy and lead a healthy lifestyle. That's what you need to do. Between exercise, between controlling your diet, not because it will cause cancer. Could it give you more risk, more risk if there are cancer cells? So it has, as we said, to kind of bypass that checkpoint. There has to be a cancer cells. It could feed on cancer. So if you want to have a diet that's not high in sugar, actually, that's good for your health, not only for cancer. So we want to make sure it's clear. We're advising still a right. very healthy diet. We're exactly. not saying it's okay eat sugar because you're good. Have you're all the Reese's gonna... pieces you want. Yeah, exactly. We're not saying that at all. No, we're not saying that in any way. Uh, it's just do it not because just you're looking to prevent cancer. Do it because that's a healthy that will prevent more problems. Uh, that's what you, why you need to do it. 
Sharing food is one of the most basic ways humans forge bonds with each other. For us, food is more than just nourishment. It's ritual, custom, and culture. So it shouldn't surprise us that cancer patients and their loved ones often seek a cure through their diet. And this pervasive idea demanded exploration. I think that leads into another common misconception and more global misconception that because we know that diet can have a significant impact on our risk of developing cancer. I hear patients and their families ask me all the time, okay, so what diet should I be on now to slow the cancer down and things like that? Well, the answer typically, there isn't any evidence of a particular diet that would change the course of disease. It's kind of that ship had sailed. You know, the cancer took off. What we are doing as treatment is to, based on mechanisms, to try to slow it down or to eradicate it in some some situations. It's an easy misunderstanding, I think, because the development of cancer is so complex. And then once a cancer evolves or develops, the things that drive it and how it behaves may have nothing to do with some of the initial triggering events. You mm -hmm. know, the thing that drives the development of cancer and the thing that might inhibit it may may have very little to do with each other. The analogy right. I, I tell people is you can start a wildfire with a match, but once you've got a wildfire going, blowing out the match won't accomplish anything. And it's a little bit like that with a great diet and cancer and some of the other, you know, risk factors. Not again, not that and we absolutely advise, you know, healthy diet, exercise, lifestyle, but in terms of once you get an established cancer, is that all of a sudden gonna wind the clock back on the cancer? I, I wish it worked like that. It's same like in lung cancer, people who are smoking, for instance. Um not that we want you to smoke, but it's already the smoke, the, the, the best would have been not to smoke from the beginning. But once the cancer developed, it's really nothing much in terms of lifestyle at this point can change. That next cigarette is not gasoline on top right. of the, the cancer fire. It's it, it's doing other bad things that it I mean, would to be, be clear to also, we'd like you not, not to smoke. smoke. <laughs> <laughs> because you might not breathe well by smoking and but it's the same just we mentioned smoking because in the same kind of mm -hmm. line as if diet can change the course no already would have been better if we had led a healthy lifestyle so before getting to the diagnosis of cancer when we get to diagnosis of cancer really it becomes looking at what treatment we could do and if surgery has a role what we can do to either eradicate that cancer or slow it down. Now, diet-wise, we want you to be healthy. And actually, we work on nutrition through cancer because that's a big challenge for patients tolerating treatment. Because when we start treatment, now if you're not going to eat sugar and not going to eat anything, you might actually not tolerate our treatment. So it's a balance. It's not like go eat what you want, but this is why we get our nutritionists involved in those in those new diagnoses because we want to establish a balanced diet, a balanced calorie count, um, to be able to tolerate treatment to get the most benefit. One of the ways cancer threatens people's lives is 
it just wears people down. You know, right. it weakens people and wears people down. The healthier a person is, or the healthier a person can remain with diet, lifestyle, and exercise, the more work there is for the cancer to do. It's not that the diet is affecting the cancer itself. It's just making the cancer's job harder mm-hmm. is, is how I think about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the what I tell patients also when they, uh, let's say when you bring up vitamins, like through treating cancer, we don't know the answer to that. There's concern that this cancer cell can can do what your normal cells are doing and they can compete to get the vitamins. So as long as you're eating a balanced diet, you really don't need much supplements. And this is where our professor, you know, when you have a professional dietitian to balance that, it's very helpful in cancer care. but yeah, that, that that's kind of a big one, the diet. And it, it there's a lot of misinformation. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, some huge businesses have marketing tools with social media and everywhere that have patients sometimes chase the wrong, uh, wrong way of treating their cancer. And it's misleading because when you are in a situation, you don't have many options and you're with advanced cancer. We've all been through it, even with family. That question will come up. Oh, there is that pill that has supplements that has, it stops. There are pills, for instance, they, they claim uh, controls insulin and stops the sugar uptake from the cancer cells. There has been like high calcium uh, pills and infusions of calcium. All these, you, you'll find bench research just looking into those questions, but they're not proven. And sometimes, unfortunately, it makes the patient go the wrong way and might be too late when they come back to go the standard of care. I, I'll call this one a myth. Misunderstanding might be a better word, but I think it's important for us to talk about it. Um, a positive attitude can help me survive my cancer. I hear that a lot. I'm sure you do too, Edgar. Yes. What about that idea? This goes, I think, to to look first at maybe the question that will come up also, like does stress lead to cancer? And me being calm and would I prevent cancer from happening? There are some studies for the stress affecting your immune system, for instance. And we know there are some cancers when the immune system is weaker. Again, go back to the checkpoint and those cells that escape the immune system. So it might have something to do, but also stress, not only cancer, but, you know, stress can affect your heart, can affect your vessels, your blood pressure. There are many other things. When we treat you for cancer, if you have a positive mindset, it's helpful in the way that having a positive attitude makes some patients tolerate some side effects more because they would push themselves like anything. There's a threshold where you can give up or continue. And that's different between patients. Some patients who have positive attitudes, that same side effect that's perceived by others to be so severe might not be perceived the same here. It's really about resilience, is what you're talking about. Kind of, yes. In other words, 
emotional resilience in a way. No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. And while every physician approaches cancer with their own unique skill set, we all agree on this one simple idea. Hi, I'm Dr. Gayu, a physician at Green Bay Oncology. The truth is, a cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and overwhelmed. And these moments are exactly when you need support the most. That's why all our doctors rely on the support of our team of qualified medical professionals. And here's two of them. Hi, I'm Madison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers, we see how meaningful connection brings strength and healing to patients and loved ones facing cancer every single day. Our patients and physicians agree, sharing your experience in a safe space with others is powerful and therapeutic. That's why we offer a free monthly virtual and in-person cancer support group facilitated for you wherever you are on your cancer journey. So whether by internet, phone, or in-person, you'll have access to the support of a community on a similar path. To join us, visit gboncology.com and click on support. Emotional resilience. I'm, I'm trying to go through treatment. I'm keeping a positive attitude. So indirectly, it helps coping with the situation. And that applies not only to cancer, it applies to any condition. You have end-stage heart disease that also has a dismal survival. But coping with it is what helps you survive it. Survive it meaning that time that you're being treated, you're able to navigate that journey better. You have maybe more chances not give up early. And we don't want to call it give up really, not to stop treatment. It's it's not a battle to give up or not to give up. But for instance, let's take breast cancer, which is curable when we do surgery in an early stage. Treatment for breast cancer has side effects, but we know outcomes improve if we are able to complete our treatment. And if we're able to persevere. If we're able to persevere. Some of which is emotional resilience to get through it. Right. Because it's not fun sometimes. So with all the nausea and vomiting, and we know we have medications for nausea actually that work on the mindset. We, are, we have medication that were given for uh, for mood disorders that now we have them FDA approved for nausea. So it tells you it has something to do also with the mindset. So kind of similar to someone wanting to participate in triathlon, for instance. Not everyone does that, but maybe that's an extreme example. But the difference between who would achieve it and no is that resilience. And this is where positive attitude can help. But is it a direct effect on the cancer care? Probably not. It's just help go through the treatment that will help. When I think of that question, there's always a couple of challenges that come to mind. The first, when we're talking about any kind of mindset or emotional state, whether that's stress, whether that's anxiety, whether it's pain, which has both you know physical and, and emotional and mental components, it is very difficult not to conclude that those things have something to do with health. The challenge is in measuring things like stress, unhappiness, anxiety. For instance, Edgar, I have a stressful job, but how stressed am I exactly? How do you define it? How do you, how define, do you define it? it? Am I more stressed than you or less stressed than you? Very difficult to know. I know how stressed I feel. For that reason, it's very hard 
to know how much is the lethal dose of stress where cancer or any other problem is concerned. That's a real challenge to a lot of what what happens in defining this link between the mind and our emotions and health, which I'm compelled to believe that there, that there is a link there, but it's really difficult to establish. There's the other aspect of it that is really more experiential based on what I have seen. If positive attitude could cure cancer, I know a lot of really wonderful people who would still be alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also can't get past the photo negative of that statement, which is if you're not doing well with your cancer, it's somehow your fault. Mm -hmm. And I can't accept that. One, because it's logically unsound and it doesn't fit with the experience I've seen of some truly wonderful people who had some truly hideous cancers. I also personally find the idea morally offensive. <laughs> so it, it I, is. It is. I can understand that. I hear it almost as a wish. What I mean by that is anything that comes like cancer that brings the possibility of, let's face it, death with us or the loss of any kind of control is terrifying. And we want more than anything to control a situation. And well, I can control that. I can control my attitude. I can control my emotions. I can do this, and then that will affect the cancer. And, you know, if someone else had a bad outcome, probably they just had a bad attitude. I and mean, when we cling to anything that might offer us at least the possibility of control, mm -hmm. so I, I, the, the idea is very, very appealing. I, so to me, it isn't about what the cancer or the fact of the cancer, what it does. I, I strongly suspect the cancer doesn't care what mood we're in. But I do believe, as you said, that how we approach things emotionally can affect the journey. It may not affect where we go on the trip, or it may not affect when we get there, but it can make all the difference in the trip itself. It does. It does. And a very important point you brought up, how we interpret those, let's say, studies or observations that stress increases cancer. It's not a measurable variable, as right. you mentioned. So now maybe you rely on the stress by questionnaire and they you know, transform that into some scoring system. But even that questionnaire is so subjective. What you're calling stress, that you call it, maybe they give you a scale, same as pain scale, that's your number. It might not apply to me. Okay. I can get, you know, when I'm on call, I can give you my scale is four. That's stressful for me. That same scale might be nine for someone else. So measuring stress, even if some studies would say, okay, there might be a link with the immune system, but this is based on an unmeasurable variable. It's not like we're giving that dose of medication, we wanna see the effect, no. So it's very hard to interpret those. Theoretically, it might have something to do with the immune system, yes. But do we have our hands on really what it is? No, it's not clear. All innovations, technological, economic, and medical, are attempts for us humans to take something we can't control 
and make it more controllable. It's in our nature to do this. And so much of the popular folklore and mythology about cancer seems to come from this same drive to try to exert control over what seems uncontrollable. And again, you mentioned the journey. It's very important to bring up again that we want to look at cancer care not as a battle. There's a winner and a loser. If we look at it, unfortunately, we probably will lose all the time. We're all going to lose We're if all it's gonna a battle. Lose if it's a battle. But if we look at it as a journey and how we're going to best do that journey, hoping our outcomes will be great. If not, we'll do our best to make the situation more acceptable or bearable. So those mindset changes and positive attitude, this is where that conversation with physician and patient has a lot of importance. How to look at it, expectations, uh, life expectancy, for example, how long would I live? Some patients want to know that, some don't. This is where that attitude is different because some they don't want to know because why would I want to know? I want to go through the journey. I don't want to call it a win or a loss. I just want to try and see what happens. So indirectly, it has an effect. But as you said, cancer doesn't care what mood you're in. It's just there. Andrew, it's a real pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com. Mm-hmm.